my heart was shattered in a million pieces on the floor. And I have never been the same since then. Never. That was like the last thing that God used to say, you are mine. Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode one. I had the honor and privilege of interviewing my pastor, David King of Concord Baptist Church. He shared his testimony, and let me tell you, it is such an amazing story. We get into demonic manifestation, the power of the name of Jesus. We talk about 2020, uh, preaching through this last election cycle, and so much more. So hope you enjoy it, and with no further ado, let's get weird. Hey, David, how you doing? Hey, Sam, doing well. Good, man. Um, welcome. Good to have you. I'm so I'm so glad. I've been looking forward to this since we since we spoke last. Um, and since I've uh, come up with a long list of questions for you. So. Well, this should be fun then. <laughs> I'm a I'm a put you through the ringer, so to speak, but. Um, <laughs> But I'm, I'm really excited about this um, and, uh, you know, probably more more than anything, I'm excited to kind of hear your story. Um, you know, as long as you've been my pastor, um, you know, I've heard you kind of hint, um, you know, in, in your sermons and from the pulpit, um, um, you know, you know, it, it changed and, you know, I, how, how different you are. And, you know, in, in my mind, I've, I've only seen you know, this David King as, as the pastor. And so, um, you know, I, I picture, you know, like a Samuel, a prophet that grew up in the tabernacle <laughs> and got <laughs> memorizing the Bible by. from the time I was a little boy. Yeah. Right. So, so hopefully, you know, um, you know, for myself and some of the listeners, we can kind of get a peek, uh, behind the curtain kind of get to know you a little bit more on, on a personal level. Uh, so, um, Let's just start there. Um, tell us how, how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. Yeah, so I grew up in a Christian home by God's grace right here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My parents are still living. They're still in town. They're still in the church that they took me to when I was growing up. So I was really blessed to be around an environment growing up where I actually heard about Jesus and heard the gospel story, was around people that seemed to genuinely love me and care for me as a child I grew up in. And so when I was young, I think I was around seven years old, I remember feeling what Christians will say is a conviction of sin. I felt bad over the fact that I hadn't honored the Lord as I should, that I myself was a sinner. I mean, at a seven-year-old, um, I think you can keenly feel your sin, even though you've not lived in the world at that age. <laughs> For the most part, you know, I wasn't bar hopping or sleeping around or anything as a seven-year-old, but I had a keen awareness that I was a sinner who was separated from God. And I remember asking Jesus to be my savior. I believe it was even a Friday night and asked my parents to come into my room and we prayed together. And man, I was eager from that point on to be public about my faith, to be baptized and I was baptized not too long thereafter and became an official member of the church. But like so many people who grow up in the church, 
I had a really hard time as I moved into adolescence, especially the junior high, I would say middle school, but our school was structured with the junior high back then. As I went into junior high and into high school, um, I was very insecure. I still uh, probably need counseling to figure out where all that came from because I was in a loving family and a good church, but I was very insecure and I was dropped into a school environment with a lot of kids who did not know the Lord and their lifestyle really showed a lot of selfishness and sinfulness and in my own insecurity and my desire to fit in, I began molding and conforming my life to the way that they were living their lives. And Sam, I don't think you grew up in Chattanooga. I mean, one of, one of the interesting things about Chattanooga, this is going to sound like an aside, but it kind of all connects. One of the interesting things about Chattanooga is there are so many schools around the city. There's a lot of private schools, a lot of public schools. Homeschooling wasn't as big of a deal when I was growing up, but I had a youth group of 70 to 80 kids, so a substantial size youth group, and I only went to school with about two of those kids. So it created this really unusual situation in my life where I could live one way at church or be perceived as one way at church and then live a totally different way at school. And nobody really knew. I mean, there was no accountability, no built-in accountability with people that I knew at church because they weren't at my school. So that was an environment that just allowed me to give in to more and more of my sinful inclinations and my desire to fit in and to be liked and who knows what else was going on there as far as my motivations, but it took me to a really dark place in my life. So as my teenage years progressed, I found myself growing further and further away from the Lord, hardened toward the Lord, giving myself to some sin, just what the Old Testament calls high-handed sins. Like I knew what I was doing and I didn't care. And right. when I was about 16 or 17, I remember I was coming home from some event and I was standing on my front porch about to walk into my house. And for some reason I was thinking, you know, if I was to die right now, I'd probably go to hell and I'm okay with that. Wow. So that's the, the low place that I had sunk to. And it's really interesting. Um, it wasn't long after that. And, I, and I'm fuzzy on the years here. I think I was 16 or 17 years old at the time. Um, I got mononucleosis, you know, and of course, everybody loved to joke, oh, the kissing disease or whatever. Um, I don't know if you've heard that or not. But I know more about exactly what, um, what that is. I don't know much about it, but mono is, a, it's a pretty severe illness where you really have a terrible sore throat to the point that it becomes hard to even swallow and you're wiped out with a fever and it can last, you know, not just a few days, but it can last several weeks over a month. And that's what happened to me. I got mono somehow and I was bedridden and my parents said, looking back on it, there was probably a couple of days I needed to be hospitalized. It was so bad. And we just didn't do that. But yeah, I remember distinctly, one of those nights laying in my bed so sick and I had this terrifying dream do you mind me sharing all this Sam you wanted to hear all this no, right yeah, no. 
Well, I, I want all the details. Okay. So, so. I had this terrifying dream and I won't describe the details of the dream, but I'll, I'll say this much in the dream. I felt as if there was an evil presence, like a satanic presence that just came over me. And when I woke up from that dream, terrified, that feeling of a satanic presence, I don't know what it was, maybe demonic, um, was still there. It was like present in my room. I was feeling it. And, and it was the first time in years that I said Jesus' name like from my heart. I called out to Jesus, said, Jesus, save me. Jesus helped me. I don't know why I turned to him. I hadn't cared about him, <laughs> but I, I just, I, he was the one that I knew was stronger, I think, than whatever it was I was experiencing in that moment. And I called on his name and I really look at that as a turning point from God in my life. I do believe that people could say, oh, you're just sick or whatever, delusional, eh, maybe, but I believe that God allowed me to have that dream and that God was using that to bring me to himself. There's a passage of scripture in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews 13. It talks about how the father disciplines his children. He's a father who loves his children. And he, and because he loves them, he disciplines them. And I think that's what God was doing in my life. He was disciplining me to bring me back to himself. I really do believe I was converted when I was a younger child around age seven, eight. And because I was God's child, he was saying, you're not going to continue on this path of rebellion. You are mine and I am going to come and get you. And I think that's what he was doing. So I recovered from mono and I'm still. So you had this dream while, while you were still sick. Yeah. You had mono, came down with this dream, uh, and you, when you say you cried out to God, um, this is in, in your mind, you, you called out, Jesus, help me. Is that yeah. right? Okay, and what, what, what happened after, I mean, in that moment? That's a good question. Um, the feeling that I had of an evil presence in my room, it did go away. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, that was just something that lodged in my mind. It's like, I, you know, I called on Jesus, which that was strange to me. What, what am I doing? And that he seemed to have answered my prayer. But fast forward, you know, a few weeks later, I get past mono. I had to have a tutor come in because I'd missed so much school because I couldn't go to school. I was so wiped out and I got caught up. But then once I'm able to go back to school and get back into my, my routine of life, I, I jumped back into all of the sinful things that I had been doing prior to my sickness, but now there was a difference. Now I felt badly about it. So I've got this new conviction again, like my conscience is afflicted now. I don't feel comfortable sinning in the same ways that I had been. And so what I did, not really knowing what to do, was try to clean up my life. And uh, you'll hear me preach about this sometimes, like how people try to do good things to make themselves feel better about the bad things that they do. I, that's exactly what I was doing. I thought, well, okay, if I can just clean up my language, if I can just stop 
partying in this kind of a way, if I can break off these certain kinds of relationships that I'm in, then I can feel better about myself. Wow, Sam, you wanted details. Um, that I'm just remembering as I tell this story, there's a lot more details here. How, how much do you want me to go? <laughs> well, no, I mean, unpack that because I, I think that's, that's going to be helpful, you know, for a lot of people. Um, you know, when you say, because certain sin grips people in, in, in certain ways. Yeah. So, you know, when you say that you went home and, and you, you said, if I die today, I'm going to hell. That, that, that thought just popped into your head. Um, because or were you dwelling on sort of your behavior i must have been was there conflict between you know what was going on between you in your you know school at, at life or social life versus what was going on at church um or is this just you had you had some clarity to think you know if, if this were to happen i i, I were you so caught up in 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 these sins that you didn't want to give them up. And so you thought I'll, I'll, I'll take hell over, over giving up, you know, kind of what these fleshly desires. Yeah. That's what I felt in that moment. Um, I don't know what brought me to even think about that in that moment. If I just come home from doing something that I really shouldn't have been doing, or maybe it was a contrast of walking in and having to face my parents again, who were, you know, good Christian parents and what in the world has happened to their son, you know, who's gone to church his whole life. So I can't really remember how aware, what was, how aware um, were they of, of, the, of this sinful life that you say you were living. Um, you say, you say partying, you were doing drugs, relationships, it's premarital sex, um, language. I mean, is, is that's what, that's what's happening. You're just kind of living a worldly life, um, kind of trying to fit in and, and you know, live, uh, like everyone else is around you. Yeah. I, that's a good question. I'd probably have to ask my parents. It's amazing, you know, as a parent now, how much, you know, that your kids probably don't realize, you know, so, I mean, right, they probably right. were aware of more than I thought they were, but I, I still don't think that they, grasp the full extent of what I was doing. So I'll tell you what happened though. I'm trying to clean up my life, kind of this moral improvement project, because I didn't really grasp the depth of the gospel at that point. Um, and so that is a failed project in my life. And I was in a relationship with a, a girl at the time who had no church background, um, did not know the Lord. And she starts seeing me changing, like, what's going on with you? And I don't have an answer. So I don't know what's going on with me. Um, I just don't feel good about doing all these things that we've been involved with. And for some reason, she said, I want to come to church with you. I was like, okay. <laughs> That's like two words. She knew that about you, that you were, you were still going to church every oh, Sunday. Yeah. You knew you came from a good home. Yeah. So despite the fact that you were both kind of I was, living a sinful life, she kind of she, 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 maybe before you could even verbalize it or, or give witness to it, she kind of attributed some of this change to God or, or, or your faith. Yeah, she saw something. And I think it was God clearly looking back on it. I did not know that at the time. I couldn't have explained that to her, 
But this is the father, I think, rescuing me out of my hardness of heart and me clueless, not knowing that that's exactly what's happening in my life at this time. But she's she's yeah. as an outsider looking in going, something is changing and I want to find out more about it. So for her, it's like, can I go to church with you was like kind of her way of finding out more about it. For me, that was a terrifying moment because that's like Mr. Hypocrite David, you know, my two worlds are about to collide here. (laughs) Um, She's like a bridge, you know, bringing my two lifestyles together. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was kind of scary for me, but long story short, I will make this shorter. Um, She did start coming to church with me and I'll never forget her meeting with my youth minister at one time. And at the end of that meeting, she came out of the meeting. She was crying and smiling at the same time. And I knew what had happened. I knew she'd gotten saved. She had become a Christian. And sure enough, that's exactly what had happened. She's like, I met Jesus. I mean, she was radically changed, like instantaneously. It's one of those like dramatic conversion experiences. She had it. And, you know, the church that I grew up in had, you know, the altar calls where, you know, at the end of a sermon, the pastor will ask people who want to make a decision of one sort or another to come down to the front of the church. And she said, hey, when he does that thing tonight, (laughs) I want you to come down front with me. Wow. And you can only imagine the turmoil in my heart in this moment, you know, because I'm like, great, she's saved oh no, this is terrible for my lifestyle. And (laughs) what does this mean for me? And now she wants me to go down in front of the church that I grew up in. Like, I'm not a stranger here. Everybody knows me here in this church. And, and I said, timidly, yes. Okay. I'll go down front with you. But inside I was like, oh, I hope it doesn't happen. And maybe she'll chicken out. And well, man, we got to that moment in the service and she's like, come on. And she walks down front and I go down front with her and like she tells the whole church, I've met Jesus. I've become a Christian. And of course the church is like ecstatic over this news. And um, I don't know, Sam, have you been in a church that does this kind of thing? Like, okay. So at the end of the service, what the church members will do is they'll line up this this is like a throwback in my mind here, especially with COVID this last year, but, you know, church members would line up and come through the line and say something to whoever's up there, whether they've joined the church, become a Christian or whatever. They'd say a little word of encouragement. So there had to be 50 people in that line on a Sunday night, you know, coming through and they're shaking my hand and they're saying things to me like, David, thank you for being such a good witness to her. You know, <laughs> you know, thank you for leading her to Christ. This is so encouraging. It's like they had no clue what they were saying, no clue yeah. what they were saying. And in within 10 minutes, Sam, 10 minutes of that, my heart was shattered in a million pieces on the floor. And I have never been the same since then. Never. That was like the last thing that God used to say, you are mine, and I mean for you to walk with me, and wow, it was just dramatic, so 
for me, it was a, it was a major turning point. I mean, I, I think I was saved when I was seven years old and that that was like the last big step of God's fatherly discipline in my life where he, he showed me his glory again in a way that um, now on the other side of all of that sin, I could see his grace, his mercy, his love, and it changed my life. I've never been the same. Wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Um, uh, it, it really honestly reminds me a lot of my own story, which I kind of gave you like the, the skim over. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's very similar to kind of um, my own. Um, so how, how long, just unpa- I'm going to unpack it a little bit. Uh, how long was she attending church with you? Was this the first time or no. has she been coming to church to you for a uh, while? I can't remember exactly. It probably was only a span of about two to three months. So a relatively right. short amount of time. And she was just going with you like Sunday service in the morning or just like youth group at I night? I think it was youth stuff at night mainly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I, I want to so say it, this as a like kind of a postscript because I think it's cool. Um, we realized really quickly we didn't need to stay in our relationship together. And so we broke that off and she went on. Um, she married a really strong Christian guy and raised a family. She doesn't live in this area anymore. And last I heard is still loving Jesus, walking with him. And I just, I praise God for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing I, I, I can say, and you, you know, you mentioned it uh, about your stories, you can kind of see, God's hand throughout your life and how he used certain events to, to draw you closer to him. Um, and that's, you know, that's amazing that, you know, she, she was able to come to Christ in that same way in, in, in the middle of your, you know, sin, right. It just uh, amongst it. Mm-hmm. And he was able to, you know, pull, pull you both out. Um, and it's just incredible. He can kind of, you know, draw you close. Yeah. Yeah however means. Um, now, when you say that you had, you know, grown comfortable with this idea of dying, going to hell, um, would you, had you made a decision to renounce your faith at that time? Or like, would you, you still would have called yourself a Christian at that time. You were just so gripped, um, you know, by your flesh that, um, you were just, um, hardened a little bit is that, is that you know kind of yeah I was very hardened and you know if somebody had asked me are you a Christian in the middle of all that I think I would have said yes I think I would have said yes right. but I would have yeah. known internally well I'm like the worst Christian there possibly could be but <laughs> right yeah right yeah I um, hadn't I hadn't come to the point of like renouncing Jesus I hadn't I hadn't, I guess that would be the, the, the next step and the last step I could have taken. And, oh, by God's grace. Yeah. He didn't let me go there. Right. Yeah. And so this dream that you had, um, really, you know, it, uh, I don't know, you, you're welcome to go into details if you want, uh, of the dream, 
Um, but from what I'm gathering, it really was more than a dream. It seems like this was, and you, you think you were being tormented. I, I think by... it was more than a dream. Yeah. Just because when I woke up, I still had those same feelings like in my room. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't think I need to go into the details of it just yeah. because I, I don't want to glorify Satan in any way. I mean, Jesus really is stronger. You know, he put his foot on Satan's neck. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, but it, I think that does highlight that, you know, when, when you um, open yourself up to, to sinful activity, um, you know, demon or Satan, whatever it may, you know, they, they can attach themselves, you know, you, you really open yourself up, you know, to that uh, demonic realm. Um, and, you know, you, you hear about those uh, entities and those um, you know, demons, uh, at, at, you know, tormenting, uh, you know, in, at night during your sleep. And, and, and so that's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to see that really this was a one-time thing for you. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and just, you know, immediately as, as a Christian, you knew to call on, uh, on, on the name of Jesus. Um, and to know you, it, within your story, you, you showed that, uh, Jesus has power, um, over, you know, those entities. So that's, that's incredible. Um, so, so moving forward, uh, you graduate, did you, um, like, when did you know you wanted to be a pastor? When did you, you know, decide to pursue, um, this as a, a career? Yeah. So it was probably within a year out of, after that last event that I just described where God just broke my heart, it was probably within that next year. I was a senior in high school. Uh, coming up on graduation, I remember driving down Gum Barrel Road. For those who are listening who are from Chattanooga, you'll know Gum Barrel. But this was 1988 or so. It was a two-lane road through the woods. If you can picture that, that's mind-blowing. And uh, <laughs> I'm driving down Gum Barrel Road in my dad's pickup truck. And for some reason, I've got the radio on to this preacher. I never used to listen to preaching on the radio, but now it's like, I can't get enough of the Bible. I love Jesus. And here's this guy preaching the Bible on, on the radio. I'm going to listen to this. And it was one of those sermons where I just felt like the spirit was speaking to me. And I know most Christians have had this kind of experience, you know, maybe multiple times as they've been worshiping and, you know, hearing the word preached, it's like God's speaking to me through his word. And that was what that sermon was like for me. The guy was preaching on, and I don't even know who the preacher was, but he was preaching on Jeremiah chapter one, the call of Jeremiah to be a prophet. And I'm just like in the zone with this guy. It's like, wow, I think the Lord's talking to me through this. And Jeremiah gave two excuses to the Lord about how he couldn't be a prophet. He said, I'm too young and I don't know what I would say. And I realized as I'm listening to this sermon, that I'm like having this same conversation to do something in his name, you know, to be a minister of some sort. And, and I'm sitting there responding, God, I'm too young for that. I'm a senior in high school and I don't know what I would say, right, but yeah. it was at the end of that sermon. By the end of that sermon, I knew the Lord wanted me to be in the ministry. I didn't know what that meant at the time but I knew he wanted me to be in the ministry. 
And I had gotten home at that point, ran into my bedroom, listened to the end of the sermon on my radio in my bedroom. And, and by the end of that sermon, I had my Bible open. I was on my knees by my bed and said, okay, God, I'm, yeah, I'm too young. I don't know what I'd say, but if this is what you're calling me to do, I'll, I'll do it. I'm yours. And so that set me on a course, you know, headed towards college um, where I knew ministry of some sort was going to be in my future. Awesome. That's incredible. Um, so, so, um, when you went off to college, where you, did you, you know, you were going to study, um, theology at that point, or did that come, uh, after you enrolled? I just knew ministry, and this is embarrassing, but I mean, it's probably a common story for kids who grow up in the church, but I did not have a doctrine of the church. I didn't have, you know, what we call an ecclesiology. So in my mind, I just felt like God's called me into the ministry. So I need to study Bible of some sort. I probably need to go to seminary because that's what you do after you go to college. If you're going to be in the ministry, it's good to go to seminary, get a master's degree. Um, I'll probably start in youth ministry and just see where it goes from there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how I was thinking about everything, which, you know, isn't altogether bad, but it's kind of sad. You know, I didn't have a doctrine of the church and by God's grace, again, um, by the time I hit seminary, um, I, I remember hearing a, a pastor who came and lectured and he lectured on the doctrine of the church. And it was the first time really that I could remember, and maybe I'd heard it before and just didn't remember, but it's the first time that I could remember hearing a man open the word of God, talk about what the church is, that Jesus had, had come into the world to purchase this bride for himself, that he shed his blood for the church, and that he's actually given us instructions about how the church is supposed to be ordered and led. I, I don't know why I didn't know that, but somehow all that had escaped me. But here's this man just opening God's word and passionately talking about the church. And that was the, the event, I guess, that God used to make it clear to me, oh, God's calling me not just to this vague concept of ministry in his name. He's calling me to be a pastor in his church. And that's where it got really exciting for me because I felt like everything became really focused, like I'm meant to be a pastor. And so now there's some like handles you can get a hold of there. It's like, what does it mean to be a pastor biblically? And I want to learn about that. And I want to, I want to try to grow into that and see what doors God opens. And God did open doors. Um, I did have a chance to do part-time ministry stuff, but it was not long after I graduated from seminary that I was able to be on a pastoral staff at a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and did that for about five years in different capacities on staff, and then ended up coming to the church that I serve now in Chattanooga and have been here as the senior pastor for 20 years. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah that's amazing how in your own story that, you know, God used the local church and, you know, these sermons um, that spoke to you at different points, um, that, you know, kind of got you on, on, on a path. Um, so the church that you grew up in, uh, did you go to Brainerd Baptist here in uh -huh. Chattanooga? I did. Okay. okay. Um, and you said your parents are still attending Brainerd. They are. They've been very actively involved, have a lot of good friends, and 
they've been really faithful Christian people over the years. Yeah. So you, does a part of you wish they had attend, you know, they would attend Concord because <laughs> I told them they couldn't. <laughs> oh, okay. You, Cause you don't, you don't want them to, why did you tell me? Yeah. I, I said, I've been your son. I can't be your pastor. <laughs> Okay. And I, I, got I was, I was sense. also thinking about them. I mean, the nature of pastoral ministry, you know, if you're not on staff, you're going to hear critiques about the pastors and it's like, oh, my right, parents right. don't need that. You know, I'm going to do some things that, you know, that, that make people confused or frustrated or even upset at different times. I'm not meaning to, by the way, just want to be clear about that, but I know that's going to happen. Yeah, um, of course. And I don't want my parents to have to deal with that, you know, and besides the fact, uh, I don't think they would have joined here anyway. I mean, they're so long connected at Brainerd. Brainerd yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it wouldn't have made sense for them to move. Yeah. Um, so you said, uh, you know, you mentioned a, a couple different sermons that you listened to. Um, so that actually had, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, who, who are the pastors? Um, that, you know, most influenced you? Um, or is, is there any sort of, you know, because at Concord, you do um, something called expository preaching. Um, was, is there a certain pastor, um, you know, that inspired you to do that? How did that come about? And what are some, some, some preachers or, or pastors that maybe you have uh, been influenced by? Well, that's a really big question. Um, I want to give a shout out to a couple of professors, first of all, because they were very instrumental in my life, just thinking about the Bible. But one was my Old Testament professor, Ken Matthews, has a great two-volume commentary on the book of Genesis. It's just masterful. But his approach to the Old Testament and helping me see what was there was just super helpful to me in a formative way. And then a New Testament professor I had, Frank Thillman, um, another just outstanding teacher. And that combination of those men in my seminary years was just very potent in helping me grasp the unity of scripture and to begin to see things that have always been there, but had just been lost on me. I just missed it, but uh, just made the Bible come alive. So I thank God for them. Pastors, though, um, I, I didn't really know much about what we call ex expositional preaching, but I heard probably my first exposure to a preacher like that. I mentioned this in a sermon just a couple of weeks ago for some reason, but uh, I was in a discipleship group at, at Sanford University, and my discipleship leader gave me these cassette tapes to listen to, Sam. Do you know what a cassette yep. tape is? <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> well, he gave me these cassette tapes of sermons to listen to, and the sermons happened to be on 1 Timothy 3, which, if you're familiar with that passage, is about qualifications for elders, qualifications for deacons. And the first sermon was on, like, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. And here's this preacher. Right. He's just walking through verse 1, and he's explaining what's there. He's illustrating it, and then he's making application to our day. It's like, wow, this is so clear, so helpful, so good. And then he moved from verse 1 
to verse two. And he did the same thing again. He explained what was there. He gave some illustrations to help you see it. And then he made application. It's like, wow, this is incredible. And then guess where he went after verse two? Verse three. And he just kept walking through the text like that. And I had never really heard preaching like that. And I loved it. I loved it. It's like, I am looking at God's word and I'm I'm having it explained to me in a way that connects to my life and our day. And it was just like life for me. That guy's name, yeah. by the way, was John MacArthur. I'd never heard of him before, but most people yeah. will hear that name and it'll be familiar to them. Um, the second yeah. person that I would mention was a British pastor. He was an older guy and he had come as a guest preacher at the church where I was going during college and his name was Stephen Olford, and Stephen Olford, man, he just had a powerful way with God's Word. He, he was a really good speaker, and he did exposition as well, where he would take a passage, and he would just walk you through the passage, explaining what was there and applying it to your life, applying it to the church, applying it to our world, and he just did that excellently. And so here it was again, it's like soul stirring preaching. It's like, oh man, I love this. Um, a third pastor that was probably, you know, definitely the most instrumental in me and helping to me and helping me understand like the nature of the church uh, was a pastor named Mark Dever, um, who uh, in, in God's providence, I'm, I'm friends with now. Um, I'm really thankful for that. Um, He's got a great ministry that our church actually supports, and our church here has benefited from tremendously over the years called Nine Marks, but uh, Mark was super helpful as a pastor, just helping me to think about not just the preaching event, but what it means to shepherd people and to care for people's souls and how, you know, church isn't just about, you know, giving the good sermon, though that's vital that we preach God's word clearly and well. We want to do that the best that we possibly can. But church also is, it's a flock, and we we are under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we're meant to tend to the souls of the flock, you know, caring for them and their spiritual well-being. You know, it's not just about how many people can we get here and how big is our budget going to be next year and what are all the awesome events and programs we can run. No, church is, it's like the body of Christ. It's the family of God and, and pastors are given as gifts to the church to help shepherd their souls and tend them. Uh, we do that primarily through truth, but also, you know, equipping them for the work of the ministry where they learn how to care for each other. and then just pastoral ministry to them, especially when they're in need or crisis, things like that. So that was another pastor that was just hugely instrumental in, in my formation as a pastor. I'll mention one other and I'll stop, but uh, John Piper was a, a big influence on my life. Um, somebody gave my wife this book back in 1995 or six called Desiring God. And I don't know if she read it, at least not then, but I did. I took her birthday gift and uh, I started reading that book and I was like, oh my goodness, I already had a high view of God's sovereignty over all things. But, you know, Piper had a way of talking about 
having your joy in this God. And the more you enjoy God, the more he is actually glorified in your life. And um, it took me a while to wade through that book. I didn't have anybody to help me understand it. And I'm kind of slow. So it took me time. But as I began to grasp what he was talking about, it was like dropping a match in gasoline for me. And, and so as I had opportunity to hear him preach, I took every opportunity I, I could get. And he's just one of those men that the spirit uses for me to stir my heart um, and to encourage me to worship God in all of his glory and to love Christ and to say no to sin and to pursue righteousness. So I think I just mentioned about six people and I better stop there, but those would be some of the key influencers in my life. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I want to talk about, about your preaching. Um, cause you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you are, you know, you're the face of our church and the, you know, people are attracted, I think, to our church. One of the reasons is because of your preaching. Um, and you talk to people at Concord, um, you know, they have confidence that our pastor is going to lead us in truth. Um, and people have a hunger and a desire for that. Um, and, you know, your, your preaching in particular, um, you know, you, 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 you preach the word of God, uh, seemingly, and, and however uncomfortable that may be, and I know you mentioned earlier, um, you know, you've had, you dealt with insecurities in high school. Uh, so I want to talk about, you know, what, what, it, what it's like being a, a pastor and in preaching some of these uncomfortable topics, because I've heard you preach on Nephilim, racism, um, you know, prejudicism, um, sexuality, gender. Um, you preach through the book of Revelation, um, you know, so it's, I feel like you really fit the mold for like the weird Christian uh, podcast. Um, you uh, preach through Ecclesiastes. You just did a, a series on, you know, not your Hallmark Christmas. Um, and so, you know, it seems that you, you're not afraid to, to go there uh, where, where, you know, where the, where the, where the word is, um, you know, uncomfortable. And so speak on, um, does that come natural to you? Um, did you have to fight through some of maybe some insecurities of dealing with some of those topics? Um, you speak to that. That's a great question. Um, my short answer is, and this is going to sound like, oh, that was just the right Christian thing to say, but I really believe this. God has inspired his word. I really believe that this is God's word to us. And so this is good. And even if it's hard or it pushes against us or the culture would say, that's not right. You know, this other thing is true. And it's just the opposite of what your Bible says. You know, I believe this is God's word to us. So it's true and it gives us life and it's good for us, even if we don't fully understand it all. So if I can see something in God's word, and here's the key for me, as far as my own fear of man and insecurity, if I can see something clearly in God's word, my fear level decreases. The more you move me away from God's word, like even like a jagged line path to an application, the further away we get from what seems very clear to me in God's word, my fear of man increases. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I'll so go ahead. Because it's truth. Yeah. That gives you confidence yes. and you can separate your own fears between 
you know, what you know is, is true in God's word. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that makes total sense. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fearless man. Um, I've, I've had to wrestle a lot with the fear of man. In fact, I mean, there was a point in my ministry, probably a little over a decade ago, I, I began telling some of the brothers that I was in groups with like, Hey, you know, pray for me about fear of man. I really need the Lord to uproot some of that in my heart. And a lot of times, I mean, people are happy to pray for me about that, but I don't think they fully understood like what you're afraid of man. It's like, yeah, I mean, you're standing up in front of people and you're saying things that they're not going to always understand, or they're not going to like, or the culture is saying is not true. And it's going to make you look bad in some way. And that can, that can cause stress. It can cause hesitation. And, you know, as a preacher of the word of God, you know, that, that needs to be killed in my flesh. You know, I, I will serve the church best. Uh, the more fearless I become about God's word, you know, even if they don't like what I'm saying, if I can show it, it's right here. Um, yeah. That will serve the church the best. Um, awesome, man. Um, so we have a very diverse age range in, in our church. Uh, we are, you know, multi-generational. Uh, that comes with its challenges. Um, and I'm proud to be a part of a church that doesn't just cater to a certain demographic. Um, so with that being said, um, we have a predominantly white church. Um, why do you think that is? And what do we need? Do we do, do we need to do anything differently to appeal to other ethnic groups? Okay, that that's a hard question, and it's a great one following the question about fear of man. <laughs> um, you know, one answer, just pra practically speaking, um, we have a predominantly white church because we live in a predominantly white community. Um, that's not a cop-out. I think it's just reality. Um, it, it's hard to have a multi-ethnic church in a largely mono-ethnic cultural setting. Right. So there's that. I don't mean for that to be a cop-out though. Um, I would love to see God diversify our membership. And the reason that I would love to see that is because I think that's what the gospel is meant to do. I, I think the gospel is meant to tear down barriers that are naturally there between people and classes of people or ethnicities or even, you know, socioeconomic barriers. I think the gospel really can unify people across all of those human barriers that we feel. So for that reason, I would love to see more diversity in our church. You know, how do you, how do you go after that in addition to prayer? Like, I think we should pray about that. You know, God, what do you, what do you want this to look like? And will you make it happen? I think that's where we start. And I think that's the fuel of it. But in addition to that, which is what I think you're asking, you know, what steps would you take? I don't know. I, I think there's some steps that could be taken um, that would honor the Lord. And, and that would be like an openness in our everyday lives to develop relationships and friendships with people that are outside our normal range of friendships. I like cross an ethnic line to make a friend and 
and, and let the gospel do its work on a personal level there. And I think that would over time translate into some really nice, more natural ways of seeing diversity grow in a congregation because we actually are living somewhat diverse lives outside of the church. Um, right. Yeah. There's other practical things that could be done. Like if there was a way to diversify leadership, like if you have to make a staff hire, um, we, we have been open to that. We've, we've prayed about that even in the last couple of hires that we've made and, and God in his providence just hasn't worked that out for us. Um, so that's a hard question. Um, I, I wish I had yeah, there's no easy answer. I just um, I wish I had a, a a good answer for that. Um, I do look forward to the day, like we heard in Revelation this last Sunday. Um, th there's coming a day where we'll stand before the throne, every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And I just like to have a foretaste of that more here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that's you know true for probably most of the. Uh most of our members as well. And I, you know, I think, I think what you said is, is you know, is, is all true. Um, all right. I have some more, uh, I have a lot, a lot of other questions here. So uh, let me see. Um, how do you think our community sees us and, and do we have a reputation as a church? You mean East Brainerd, Chattanooga? Concord, Concord. Concord. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know if you could any thought about that. I mean, I, I, I have a coworker uh, that, that said to me one time, uh, and he was, there's three of us, and he said, you know, you know, Sam, he, he goes to Concord, so you know, he's he's a, he's a real Christian. Um, he said something like that to me, and <laughs> it, it made me feel good. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, we're, we're we're in the church, so you know, we don't necessarily. Um, we can't really see it from, from the outsider's point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wish uh, I had a better idea. I, I mean, the things that I do here, I, I'm pro I'm being told the things that I hear probably because they are either benign or complimentary. You know, most people aren't going to walk up to me and just say something bad, you know, Right. Yeah. but yeah, um, what I do tend to hear is that we, we seem to be a church that people understand, take God's word seriously. So, I mean, if that's true, then I'm happy about that. Uh, I do hear frequently that we tend to be um, a friendly church. And I know that in some ways we're not. And we drop the. I'm very thankful for that. And then I'll talk to people who have no clue who Concord is. They live right here. They don't even know. And, and you know what I always tell them, Sam? I said, do you know where Baskin Robbins is? And they're like, Oh, oh, that church across from Baskin Robbins. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's us. We're Concord, right across from Baskin Robbins. <laughs> yeah. That's um actually what you just said is kind of a, a good lead into my next question. Um, and what's what's the biggest area of growth for our church, you think? Ways that we have grown or we need to grow. Uh need to grow. Okay. You can answer the first one as well, um, if you want. Um I would say a way that we need to grow is probably more natural prayer for and with one another. We work at prayer a lot. I mean, we encourage it a lot, but for some reason that's hard for people. And 
I haven't quite put my finger on what makes that so hard for us, but I would love to see our church become more of a praying church, um, not just from the the platform in a worship service, but I mean, in our relationships with each other, like we're willing to share like, like more personal things that are going on in our lives and just say, Hey, will you pray for me about this? And for your brother or sister, not just say, yeah, I'll pray for you about that, but actually pray together. Like take a minute, you know, pray, pray with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Um, I think along those same lines, probably more willingness to be open and real about just what's going on in our lives. I don't mean just bear all of your sins, but you know, even the good things like here's what the Lord's really teaching me right now. And to have, have kind of a, a more transparent, authentic Christian faith that we don't just privatize. We're, we're able to like communicate about our love for Jesus, our struggles in following Jesus, and that there's enough of us doing that together that's like, oh, this is just Christianity. You know, we're, yeah. we're being yeah. sanctified together. I would love to see that become more natural. Um, and then one big one, and I save this for last, is I would love to see more people come to know Jesus Christ who don't know the Lord. Um, we pray about people being converted. Uh, we preach the gospel as clearly as we can. But I just love to see more people, you know, from our community, through our relationships, for coming into the church, experience new life in Jesus, like where they're changed. Um, yeah. I'm eager for that to happen. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, if you could go back and visit yourself as a young pastor, just starting out, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> I wish I'd had that question in advance to really think through that. That's, Sam, you should do a podcast because these are really, <laughs> these are really good questions. Um, I think I would tell my young self. What would I tell my? Hey, can I come back to that? Come back to that. Uh, um, I, that is a great question. Be uh, do you have a like a? What's your biggest regret as a pastor, or do you have one? Where do I start kind of on that? Um, Okay, I, I'm not sure how I'd answer that. Um, if it doesn't come immediately, that's I, okay. If there's like just one kind of thing that uh, if I could just go back, I, I would have done that differently. Um, I can think of like specific instances, like I wish I would have led differently. Like I wish I would have like led in a different sequence of events or I wish I would have uh, managed a situation differently. I can think of little things like that along the yeah. way. There's probably a long list of those. <laughs> yeah. But like a big picture thing. I, you know, I would say, well, you got me here, Sam. I'm I'm going to be chewing on this and I'll probably want to come back to you and answer these questions in about a week. Okay. So <laughs> we can maybe do a part two. Yeah. Um, uh, if you weren't a pastor, what would you do? Uh, and do you see yourself retiring as a pastor? Or do you have other aspirations? Oh, no, I, I don't see myself doing anything else. I mean, the only other thing I could see myself doing, like supplementary to pastoral ministry, would be teaching of some sort. I love teaching God's word. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I, you know, one of my favorite things is uh, our Wednesday nights 
where I could just walk through books of the Bible and do it in a Q&A format with people who are there. And I love the give and take of that dynamic. And, yeah, you know, so being in a classroom maybe at some point would be just, I think, a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you. You're, you're naturally a teacher. Yeah. Um, what does a typical day at work look like for you? I don't have a typical day. I mean, it depends on what day of the week it is because there's just kind of different rhythms throughout the week. Um, starting on Sunday, first day of the week, um, I am up super early and finishing up all the stuff for my sermon for that morning. Um, there's been a long process leading up to that. That's not where I start getting ready for my sermon. Just want to be clear about that. But, uh, you know, finishing up stuff for my sermon Sunday morning and then preaching. And then usually um, a, lo a lot of Sundays, there'll be some other kind of meeting or something that I need to do later in the day. So Sundays are pretty big days. Uh, Mondays, we have staff meeting on Monday morning. And this is a chance for all the guys to get together and kind of debrief and look ahead for the week and see what we need from each other so that we can be a support to one another in getting things done. And then I usually have uh, visits that I make on Monday or I'm getting some initial thoughts together for um, the upcoming sermon or whatever I'm teaching. Tuesday is more of a study day, although I usually have one or two like counseling appointments sprinkled in there. Wednesday, we have a, a Wednesday live event that we do on Facebook. That's going to transition in just about two to three weeks where we go back to a Wednesday night teaching environment. So um, I'm finishing up administrative stuff on Wednesday, trying to get all of that done and then getting ready to teach. Then Thursday is largely dedicated to sermon prep. So that's what I try to get myself to on Thursdays. Then Friday. Um, that's my day off. I set it down and uh, spend time with my family. And then by Saturday night, yeah, Saturday night, I'm worthless. Uh, I'm done with family. And it's my head is so in church world that, you know, I'm usually working all of Saturday night before I go to bed. Wow. And then Sunday. Okay. So you have more typical, typical week than, than typical day. Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads me in, into to my next question, um, 2020 and all the changes that came with that. Um, so what were some of the biggest challenges to adapting uh, to 2020? Um, and how do you see things moving forward? Um, I know you mentioned we're switching back uh, Wednesday night. Um, uh, it, but does anything... Um, you know, is anything going to be permanently differently? Are we going to do anything different, uh, you know, now that we've kind of already adapted, um, you know, to 2020? Um, but, but, you know, start, just kind of walk us through, um, you know, last spring, um, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and the challenges and, and, and how we were able to, to kind of adapt and do things differently and then moving forward, what it looks like. Yeah. Um... David Rayner, one of the pastors on our staff, talked to a pastor that he had served under years ago who has been in the ministry at the same church for like 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. Can you imagine that? Like he's wow. given his entire adult pastoral ministry to this one congregation, and it's been a, a, a great church. But he said this guy had been in his church for 40 years, that this past year was the hardest year of pastoral ministry he's ever had. 
And that just gives you a little perspective from a pastoral point of view. Um, we've had some hard years, definitely in the 20 years that I've been here. But yeah, pastorally speaking, this last year has been super hard. And I would say for two reasons. One, I have this really strong understanding of the church as a gathering. The church is a body. The church is a family, which is why we've prioritized over the years, you know, one worship service. And, um, and I'm not saying that churches that decide to do multiple worship services and campuses are in sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying for us, we are working out our understanding of the doctrine of the church by trying to keep everybody together as one. And last year blew that up, um, just totally blew it up. And when we were able to begin regathering, I think we decided to do that three months into the pandemic after the shutdown initially. We came back with what has become not one service, but four services plus an online venue. So nothing has been like what I've been accustomed to and believed in for 20 years here at Concord. And, and that's not just me. I think the church feels that, I mean, they valued being all together and now they're, they're picking one service out of four if they come on campus and they don't know who else is coming to the other services. Um, who's not coming that used to come, all the changes, yeah. you know, you're, everybody's just isolated in new ways and fragmented in ways we've never experienced before. That's been a huge challenge. The other challenge this past year has been what every church has faced. I know people having very strong opinions about the pandemic itself and how to move through it responsibly, you know, from mass to social distancing to, you know, the timing of how you make changes you know, this, this has not been a year where you could just point to a Bible verse, which I feel good about, and say, here's what God's word says. Let's do this. Um, yeah. It's been a year where we've had to apply wisdom, and we've had to make judgment calls, like actual judgment calls. Like, are we doing it the right way? Well, I don't know if there's like a right versus a wrong way. We're making judgment calls here, and some people within our own church are going to see it really differently than than, than what we're doing, but we've got to make a decision. We've got to do something. And, yeah. and so that's been so challenging, you know, just encouraging the church and feeling it in my own heart too. Like, let's really, let's work at what the Bible says about not judging each other over matters of opinion. And what, what the Bible says about love, you know, believing the best about one another, um, because somebody is approaching the pandemic or looking at it differently than you um, doesn't mean that they're a bad person. I mean, how can you believe the best about them? You know, what might be their motivations and how they're thinking through things? Uh, even if you disagree with them, you could probably quickly come to a place where you, you were given the benefit of the doubt or attributing good motivation to your brother or sister in Christ. So that's just been challenging. Yeah. Where do we go from here? I'm optimistic. Um, I'm optimistic because numbers seem to be going down. I'm optimistic because it has been a year and I think people are, are willing to take more worthy risk to restore good fellowship with each other. Um, I'm optimistic because the vaccine, I think, seems to be somewhat effective and helpful. Um, Tom will tell on that, but 
I think there's just a lot of things trending in a helpful direction for us to keep making incremental changes back toward one gathering. Um, we're a ways off from that, but our plan here at church initially is like these next three months, March through May, we want to meet outdoors as much as we can because that affords us to get back together as one. Um, in June, we are considering moving one of our services uh, to a less restricted environment for those who feel comfortable, but we'll still leave the other options for those who don't feel as comfortable, but we want to keep, we want to keep slowly pushing the church back to one gathering. So it's going to take time, but I am optimistic that we, I'm, I'm hoping maybe even by this fall, if we could get there, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good to hear your heart there. Um, so that leads me to my next question. Um, you know, approaching November uh, as um, a country, you know, we've been pretty divided. Um, and that's true for many people, even within our local church. So how do you manage your personal uh, political convictions with preaching um, amongst this political climate? Uh, and, and what is the church's role in local, uh, in politics in general? Oh, man, this is another, let me come back to you in a week kind of question. Um, I, I would have to say, Sam, I am, this year has caused me, when I say this year, I mean, this last political cycle has yeah. caused me to have to really evaluate my preaching philosophy with regard to politics. And for good or for ill, at least this past cycle, um, I've really kind of doubled down on my current or on my previous practice of, you know, I'm not going to say, I'm going to try not to say anything from the pulpit or even really, I've not even said anything just in conversation with people. I'm going to try not to say anything that lets people know like who I'm voting for not because I don't have an opinion about these things. I do have opinions about these things, but I think it's been important for me as a pastor to guard my role as a pastor in a contentious situation, you know, to be able to keep speaking God's word, hopefully to people in as nonpartisan a way as I can. And, and I'm sure, you know, people who are closer to me can guess like what I think about certain things, but I have intentionally kept those cards close to my vest um, because I feel like it might serve my pastoral ministry better. It might serve the church better if I do so. Um, another thing that's been helpful to me is making a distinction between what a friend of mine has called straight line and jagged line issues. Have you heard this phrase? Have I, have I mentioned this at church before? I don't think so. Okay. So straight line, jagged line issues. I think if if Christians could understand straight line, jagged line issues, it would help their relationships. It would help unity in the church. Yeah, I think it would bring more love and peace to a congregation. But what I mean is a straight line issue is, a, is an issue in scripture that you could draw a straight line to contemporary application. You don't even have to do like much interpretation there. It's like, oh, I totally see where you're getting this from. You know, an example here would be abortion. You know, you know, a Christian, I just picked that one because it's kind of obvious, like a Christian who understands that God creates life 
um, there's a pretty straight line from that biblical teaching to a civic application. Oh, we, we don't need to support abortion. Versus a jagged line issue. A jagged line issue is, it's like we see what scripture says, but in order to get to an application, we have to follow kind of several moves. It's like a jagged line. It's like, if you follow my reasoning, like if I can unpack it for you, you can see how I arrived at this application. But it's not a straight line from what's in the text to that application. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. No, and no, totally. I mean, to continue with that same example that I was given about abortion, you know, one Christian might say, okay, well, to oppose abortion, everybody ought to support a crisis pregnancy center. <laughs> well, maybe not. Um, absolutely. That's a great thing for a Christian to do, you know, support a crisis pregnancy. We've got a lot of people in our church who do that. And our church even supports one in our city gladly. But is that, is that an ought for every Christian, like every Christian ought to support the crisis pregnancy center? No, I don't think so. It's a jagged line issue. Um, another one would be um, like protesting abortion in front of an abortion clinic. You know, some Christians feel like, yeah, this, this is the way that I should oppose abortion. I'm going to protest in front of an abortion clinic. Well, that Christian could do that in faith, but that Christian needs to understand that that is a jagged line application that should not be imposed on other Christians, Like they ought to do it this way. Am I making sense? Please help me here, Sam. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, um, so out of the realm of abortion, you know, you can go into any other, you know, civic issue as controversial as you want to be. Like, how do you deal with racism or the role of of women in society or, I mean, on LGBTQ stuff and how do we relate to church uh, church families who have, you know, relatives who are coming out as homosexual. And uh, it just raises all kinds of questions, many of which are not a straight line from yeah. what we see in scripture to what every Christian ought to do. There's, yeah. there's a lot of jagged line stuff. And I think if we can learn to make wise discerning differences between straight line and jagged line issues it'll help us give grace to other christians who are maybe ending up in a different place or they're choosing a different path or they're making a different decision um it doesn't mean that they're not a christian or they're a horrible person they're just they're working out that jagged line differently so some things aren't jagged lines. Some things are straight lines and they shouldn't be made jagged. But my experience in, in, in our context is that there's a lot of things that are probably jagged lines that people would rather just treat as a straight line so that they can classify everybody and make sure they know who's in what tribe. And oh, well, we, we need to think more carefully biblically in that way. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right, let's see. Um, I'm kind of getting to some more uh, lighthearted stuff here. Um, so you reference Tolkien and C.S. Lewis a lot in your sermons. Uh, so I don't Sorry. think it's a stretch. To see. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. Um, I think many of our members appreciate that. Uh, I was going to say, I, th I don't think it's a stretch to say you're a little bit of a nerd. Um, uh, so what is the nerdiest thing about you? Oh, 
the nerdiest thing about me I mean, if like reading fiction makes me a nerd, yeah, I'm a nerd. Um, I like good fiction. I don't, I don't just read anything, but uh, I like literature. <laughs> that's pretty nerdy. So that's one of my questions. What, what's what you know? What's uh, favorite books of yours? Well, I mean, I've loved The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I've loved C.S. Lewis. You know, a lot of his essays, but you know, even the Chronicles of Narnia. Man, they're just loaded with really helpful stuff. Um, there's been other various like novels that have been meaningful to me over the years, mystery. Oh man. Somehow I got on Arthur Conan Doyle. I've read all the Sherlock stuff probably three or four times. There's like 56 short stories and four novels that he wrote. I've read them all like, multiple times. Just love, I've yeah. loved stuff like that. Um, another nerdy thing, and this is like really nerdy is, uh, I don't really watch TV. Um, yeah. I'm the kind of person, I'm the kind of person, like if you put me in front of a TV, um, I could get sucked in and like go down the rabbit hole and just make a wreck out of my life. So, you know, by God's grace in my life through different ways, um, I, I've come to a place where I just don't even really watch TV at all. I mean, I watch football during football season. I do like football. But that's it. Yeah. That, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that I was my one of my next questions. What are, we, what are, your, what are your favorite movies? Um, I don't know if that means that you don't watch a lot of movies, but are there are any, you know, obviously there's movies um, from Tolkien's work and C.S. Lewis' work. Um, do you have any other uh, movies that, um, that you love? I didn't really care for the Narnia movies, um, actually. I did like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. I enjoyed that. Not the Hobbit, not so much for some reason. Um, I grew, I mean, the, the first movie I remember seeing, and this is going to date me, but 1977, I was seven years old. Oh man, we need a fact check here. It could have been 78. I think it was 1977. I was seven years old. I, w I went to Star Wars in the theater when it was first released. And I, and <laughs> We didn't go to many movies and my parents got us there on time, which on time for a blockbuster movie is late because there's no seats left. And the only yeah. seats left in the whole theater were on the very front row. And I remember, oh, wow. you know, as a kid, a seven year old sitting on the front row and, you know, the opening scene where that, that Star Destroyer flies oh, over yeah. and just keeps coming oh, yeah. and coming and coming. And, you know, as I wish I could see my face as the seven year old little boy watching that. I was like, Oh, you know, and so, you know, you leave a movie like that and you're like trying to draw stormtroopers and it's like your whole life is just opened up to this, this galaxy far, far away. I mean, that was pretty instrumental in my, my young life. <laughs> yeah. no, I love hearing that uh, because, you know, it's, it's still popular today. Um, you know, people like me, I guess it was re-released, but you know, you can't yeah. recreate that experience that, that you did, yeah. you know, seen something that had never been done before i would say um just on this same topic of movies i mean one movie that I, i've really enjoyed i hesitate to even mention movies because i'm not endorsing everything in the movie like oh this is no, great but, yeah, I'm just, um there was an old movie called hunt for red october which mm -hmm. i just think is a really cool story I, I think it's a good story and i enjoyed that movie and I, i'm gonna acknowledge this um, and I, I know this is like very debatable, 
but uh, I watched Pride and Prejudice with my wife, and I really enjoyed it. And <laughs> and since then, I've read the book. Like Jane Austen is a great writer, and Pride and Prejudice is just like a delightful. And, and I think even an instructive novel in many ways. So there you go. I'm nerding out. That's, that's, that's <laughs> on my watch list. Now, now I'm inspired to go, yeah. to go and actually watch it. Um, music. Uh, do you have favorite artists, um, types of music? What do, you, what do you like to listen to when you listen to music? At this point in my life, I'm pretty eclectic. Um, I had a classical piano background. So, you know, on my playlist right now on Spotify, I've got, I've got a playlist called Hoity Toity. And it's just like classical music, uh, music that I think is more technical and really engages me, like in more than just, a, oh, that sounds good kind of a level. It's like I, I understand kind of what's going on with the music. Like it's just fascinating to me. Um, wow. But from there to, you know, like more a really eclectic range of stuff. Like I love Andrew Peterson's music and Sarah Groves and to more of a, oh man, my playlist is so crazy, Sam. Colony House. Um, I've got all kinds of selections of like what we would call secular music, not Christian music, but just a kind of a wide array of stuff. I don't put things on my playlist that are going to, they're going to get in my head in a way that takes me away from Christ. Like I've, I've had to like remove some songs from my playlist because I, it's not a Christian song, but not only is it not a Christian song, it's saying things that are like getting into my head that are, they're not true. And, and I don't want to go there. So I do listen to a lot of secular music, but I'm very selective about that. Um, I grew up on rock and roll like Van Halen, I, I could list several bands, but uh, I've got a wide array of music interest. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great to hear. Um, do you have a favorite Bible character? Bible character? Yeah. Not G, like you can't pick Jesus, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. other than Jesus, yeah. You know, I don't have a favorite Bible character. However, just thinking about it off the top of my head, I have been enamored with Daniel over the years. And I think because, you know, here's this, this young guy, and we don't know exactly how old he was, but like he's ripped out of his home and his land, and he's taken into this foreign government, and he's educated in the ways of Babylon. Like he receives this amazing education, but it's not a Jewish theocentric education. Um, and he finds a way to honor God in the midst of that context. And he does so from a heart that's devoted, like when that prayer edict is passed. I mean, he's still, he's going to his room and he's praying three times a day. Like here's a devout yeah. man and it makes him fearless. We talked about fear of man. I mean, he's, he's going to face a den of lions over this. And I mean, God just miraculously rescues him, which God didn't have to do. God would still have been faithful if he hadn't rescued Daniel, but that's an amazing character in the Bible to me. 
So I'll tell you one more now that we're talking about it. Um, a little known guy named Beniah in the Old Testament. Have you heard of him? It's not ringing any bells. No, probably not. Uh, Beniah was one of David's mighty men. I've loved Beniah over the years. This is interesting, that theme of uh, fearlessness again. There's one verse about Beniah. Every time you see Beniah in the Old Testament, he's doing something good. You just see the little like snapshots of him along the way about three or four times. And he's doing something noble. But one of the verses that first turned me on to Beniah, it says something like, Beniah went down into the pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. It's like, that dude is bad to the bone. I mean, that is a cool dude. Like, you start picturing, like, he intentionally did this. Like, he went into a, yeah. a pit, like, on a snowy right. day, meaning, like, this is, like, even extra dangerous because of, you know, his inability to get footing the way he would want to. And he kills a lion. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah well so there's a picture of cow um not cowardice of courage and he uses his courage in the service of the king king david um so yeah he's he's been a fascinating person to me awesome awesome i love it um do you have a favorite book of the bible ephesians i love ephesians Ephesians. yeah ephesians is one of those books like Almost every single verse is worthy of memorization. I mean, you could say the whole Bible is worthy of memorization, and that would be a true statement. But, you know, just for for using in your your personal meditation, your daily life, like Ephesians is just that book. I mean, from its opening verses about all these spiritual blessings we've received to the way God brings his salvation by grace into our lives individually. And then how that works itself out corporately, you know, tearing down the division between Jew and Gentile to the great prayer at the end of chapter three, about knowing the love of God that surpasses knowledge, pivoting into chapter four through six, talking about sanctification, just all these really practical aspects of what it means to put off your old self, put on your new self. And the book ends with that really helpful passage about, spiritual warfare and what it means to fight it's like every bit of that book is just like so helpful and it's my favorite i love ephesians awesome um do you have a favorite verse you might have a few but yeah um... i've had different favorite verses over the years i mean currently the last few years my favorite verse has been isaiah 33 17 that your eyes shall behold the king in his beauty and see a land that stretches afar. And it's a prophecy of the Christ, our King, Jesus. And I believe the new heavens and the new earth is going to be the fulfillment of that, that land promise. So we're going to see the king in his beauty and his land that stretches afar. I mean, that is our destination in Christ. And, and, and the coming of Christ that brings all of that in is our hope, Scripture says. So that's just really captivated my imagination, my heart. It's encouraged me. I can't wait to see our King. Can't wait to see the new heavens, the new earth. Yeah, I know that's true because I've, I, I, I can say in countless sermons. You know, I've heard you preach on on that very, very thing. Um, 
All right, let's see. I know you mentioned, uh, you know, Fridays is your day off. You spend it with family. Um, what do you like to do on your day off? What do you like to do um, with family? Um, what are things you like to, to enjoy in, to do in your free time? Yeah, I mean, usually that the weekend, like Friday and then part of Saturday, there's going to be some house projects that I need to get done. So I do that. Um, I love being my kids. My kids are so fun. Um, I actually have the responsibility of helping my youngest daughter right now with one of her classes in school. So every weekend we work on that class together and we like to be outdoors as a family and we don't get to do that all the time, but you know, weather permitting, like if we can get outside, that's what we like to do. Like just being outside, working in the yard, playing in the driveway, or we'll go hiking somewhere or now that our kids are getting older, it's been easier to actually go like exercise and run trails, be out on the trails together. Yeah. And um, we like to eat. Um, <laughs> my wife is an awesome cook. That's part of her background, actually. And so we usually enjoy a good meal together. And that's pretty, those are pretty staple things for us on a weekend. Awesome. Um, okay, so if you could have dinner with five people dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, there's another, let me get back to you in a week question. <laughs> Cause I, I'm going to, I'm going to lay in bed tonight, Sam. And I'm going to think, Oh, this is how I should have answered that question. Right. Um, this, this, this is showing David King as, as the intellect, you know, want to flippantly come up with some answers. That, that's right. And I mean, that's like a weakness in me for sure. It's like, I've got to think through everything and make sure I give just the right answer. That's yeah, a weakness. Um, it's okay. You don't have to come up with a. Yeah. We'll let you mull it I over, have to mull it up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, this is uh, really honestly been uh such a pleasure sitting down um, and, and hearing from you. Um, so once again, thank you so much. Uh, you know, this is our, our first episode and I'm so honored and proud to be able to have that with you. Um, you know, before we leave, uh, tell people how they can get plugged in uh, with Concord. Yeah, so right now, if you wanna get to know Concord, I would say you could check us out on Facebook. If you're not getting out and about, we have a live stream at nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. Occasionally that goes wrong and we pitch to 11 o'clock, but usually that's at nine o'clock. Um, it's not a TV production. It just is what it is, but you get a sense of the kinds of songs that we sing in worship and how we pray and how we handle God's word. Even better would be come on campus and join us. And you can find out how our service structure works by going on our website. We've got a nine and 11 o'clock service. We've got gym options where you can be a little bit more social distance and wear a mask and feel comfortable. Um, but if you could get on campus and actually get around people and meet people, I mean, that that is ideal. Uh, we're about to start back a Wednesday night Bible study that I'll teach on March the 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And that's another fun way to get connected where you could meet people and have conversation over God's word. And those would probably be the best ways right now. Awesome. Um, well, once again, thank you so much. Um, you know, 
when the time comes, maybe uh, if we have something else that, you know, we can talk about, we can, you know, address some of those questions once you've come up with the, you <laughs> my know, perfect an answer. answer. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, I'd love to do a part two, but uh, this was, um, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. This has been a joy. All right. Um, all right. Well, with that, I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at theweirdchristianpodcast at gmail.com. Let me know if you or somebody you know would make for a good guest on the show. And with that being said, I'll see you on the next one. Bye.